Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Etymology and Erections and a very happy Valentine's Day to you. That's if you're listening to this on the day it's released. If you're listening to it another time, we still love you. Keep listening. You can save it and you can play it again next Valentine's Day as well. So, some V-Day facts for you. As well as love, St Valentine is the patron saint of epilepsy, fainting, plague and beekeepers, not to mention greeting card manufacturers. It's thought that the traditional Valentine's heart shape might come from the seed of the sylphium plant, which is a giant species of fennel, I reckon everybody in North London knows that already, used in ancient Greece and Rome as a herbal contraceptive. Every Valentine's Day at the San Antonio Zoo in Texas, for a small fee, they will name a cockroach after your ex and feed it to a meerkat. All the proceeds go to charity. That is karma working at its absolute best. And elsewhere in the US, the Seattle Aquarium hosts a Valentine's date night for their giant Pacific octopuses. Octopuses have three hearts, by the way. Yes, count them. One, two, three. So Valentine's Day is a big occasion for them. (laughs) Well, it's lovely to see you. That's my guest today, Tom Reed Wilson. The first ever man to send a Valentine's note was a French man who was later imprisoned in the Tower of London after the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. I don't think the two things were connected. But anyway, who says romance is dead? Well, I guess he didn't once he was dead. In Japan, Valentine's Day is celebrated by women giving men chocolate and gifts. And then a month later, 14th of March is White Day, when men answer this by giving the women in their lives jewellery and chocolate. If you wanted to show someone you weren't interested in them in the Victorian era, you could send them a vinegar valentine, which was an insulting alternative to a regular valentine, apparently. And finally, condom sales, yes, condom sales, are 30% higher around Valentine's Day. Think of the money I'm saving by being menopausal. No, that's not remotely hyperbolic. I think that's about right. Tom Reed Wilson rose to fame after what he describes as his spectacular flop on BBC's The Voice, which led to him catching the eye of a television executive working on a new show for Channel 4 called Celebs Go Dating. Soon after, he found himself on screen, manning the reception desk at the celeb dating agency, and the rest, as they say, is history. His love and knowledge of words has led to the nation loving him. His podcast, Tom Reed Wilson Has Words, with guests so far including Jennifer Saunders, Dawn French, Joe Brand and Rob Beckett, and his daily Word of the Day vignettes on Instagram, have together amassed him thousands upon thousands of devotees. He is a self-described jolly hockey stick, full of mischief and innuendo. Tom and I talked about celebrity, relationships, belonging, etymology, money, schools, literature, celebs go dating, nature, nurture, childhood, the voice, fame, authenticity, sexuality, 
Snoop Dogg, acting, personality and wordle. But our conversation started by me telling him that we have in common the fact that we both grew up on the campus of schools where our parents were French and English teachers. I should add, by the way, I don't mean the same parents. Oh gosh, well, it's very similar. I mean, I exist because of an English and French teacher, but the French teacher was my maternal grandfather. Oh, okay. Um, so, so he and my dad taught at the same school, which was Bradfield College. Mm-hmm. And there was a very funny kind of almost Truman Show-esque phenomenon where people forgot there was a world outside. So when they began to sort of think about romance, they thought, truly to the bounds of the college and not beyond. And that's what happened with my mum when she kind of came of age and she sort of thought, well, who were the youngest teachers who I find most alluring? And my dad was top of the list. And um, and so they sort of began a slightly clunky affair, really. Why was um, it clunky? Well, I think they weren't very well suited because okay. they discovered very, very quickly. But, Did they? So after but, the advent of you, they discovered that perhaps you were the best thing about them. <laughs> well, I was I was the sort of accident that hastened nuptials, you know, and then and then my sister followed quite quickly thereafter. I mean, there's only 364 days between us. So we're sort of twins for a oh, day. Oh, wow. Um, numerically, at least. And um, that's very unusual, isn't it? Very. Oh, very, very. Yes. very. Um, and then there was a big gap and then my brother came along. But my brother came along really at the shank of the marriage. I mean, I love the idea of the shank of a marriage. The number of marriage shanks there have been because of lockdown, don't you think? (laughs) Marriages that wouldn't have had shanks before. But it's a two-pronged fork, Kelly, because also it's some rather magical relationships too. I mean, my cousin, um, he did some very bold manoeuvring with his girlfriend, um, which he wouldn't have done without the catalyst of lockdown, you know, in terms of them moving in together and all of that stuff, and they're extremely solid. You know? I'm going to say that was shit or bust, but I dare say you'd have another way of referring to that. What would your preferred <laughs> description be for that? Well, I mean, the pendulum swingeth, doesn't it? I mean, it, it was those great polar extremes of um, I must divorce you online as fast as I can, or let's hunker down together and have a glorious time. I'm still waiting for all the kind of divorcees who come out of lockdown to sort of become available in a reasonable manner because I'm single, but I don't want one who's just divorced because they're always like a kid in a candy shop. So I want them to have had a bit of time out there reacclimatizing. <laughs> yes, then... yes, you don't want that. No, not no. immediately. But going back to your, so so um, I don't know how it is for you, but growing up in a school and in the grounds of a school. Yes. Was it the same for you? So we didn't have money but everybody else at the school who was sent there as a pupil did have money so we were there by dint of our parents I don't know if it was the same for you working there so it wasn't like we were the sort of upstairs downstairs we weren't quite downstairs but equally there I remember every lots of people I went to school with had you know lived in far-flung countries and had been on planes and went skiing and we'd never been on a plane and we didn't we went camping or to little sort of cottages in Cornwall was it a bit the same for you you were an outlier in Ralph Lauren and all you know it was it was was very much you you were 
you did sort of daily countenance a completely different world when the when the kids were there you know a, a rather grand world and it is very hard to convey to other people because you know like i mean i was born with this enormous plum in my mouth and uh, and people automatically assume that accompanying the plum was an enormous silver spoon but th there wasn't that you know a penniless plum which is the very worst kind of plum to have in your throat isn't it <laughs> yes 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 and uh, I don't mind the assumptions terribly but it's funny because the only thing that sort of uh, in my sort of taste and predilections that goes with my plum really is is a penchant for champagne and everything you know I'm a raving liberal and I'm not Nothing else goes with it, you know, seemingly in terms of those um, automatic assessments that people make. Um, Although it does go, I think people do assume often that the language, so your love of words and your love of language, it's not hard yeah. to see how that might have started out if you um, come from, you know, the, the spawn of an English teacher. So yeah. did you grow up, because my mother is an absolute, you know, prolific reader. And I, I remember everyone used to, I've got a brother um, and all everyone used to read uh, in their spare time. And I used to get kind of really irritated and think, can we just do something? And why is everyone so happy just reading? But I suppose it did mean I grew up with a love of literature and it was just all around me and was it similar for you that books and words were just part of your world from oh, the dot yes. oh yes oh there's so much to say on that I mean I, I don't know where to begin really well the first thing was that I never had to learn to be discerning which is something I only realized in my mid-20s because my dad was this extraordinary sieve for the golden nuggets of literature, you know, and um, I suddenly realized, I think I was in a Waterstones in my mid twenties and I was choosing a book and I thought, I was flicking through and I thought, this is a very bad book. <laughs> and you'd never come across a bad book before. No, I'd never, I'd never come across a bad book because they were all given to me secondhand. And my dad would sort of say, I think you'd rather like this, Tom. And, and he was always right. So that was extremely fortunate, but also in terms of language, I mean, Daddy was rather late to fatherhood and he would still be a confirmed bachelor had my mum not come along at, at, on the college campus as she did. And, How old was your dad when he had you? Well, by today's standards, not very old. I mean, he was 30, I think he was 38 when mm -hmm. I arrived, but, you know, he, he was not interested. And then, lo and behold, partly because of that, was the most brilliant father because he, he couldn't, he couldn't find another channel or another groove for talking to children. And so these vast polysyllables would rain down about us and we just had to try and ingest them and then eventually digest them. But I remember him doing things like we'd pass a shop window and there'd be a beautiful window display. And he'd say, isn't that a magnificent display in the window? Window! Vander Alger, the wind's eye, curiously nothing to do with glass and everything to do with ventilation. And you just sort of go, oh, oh, you know, and every word was a story. And the other thing that he would do, he still does, is that he would stop in his tracks sometimes. I mean, like the last time I saw him, he stopped in his tracks and he said, this has been lovely, but fleeting, short-lived, brief ephemeral and just sort of chew on synonyms for you know for as long as he could make them last and it, which if he's like his son was probably a very long time 
and it is it's contagious it, it, it is contagious um so yeah now i was i was jolly lucky in that regard because you couldn't not be fascinated you know you really couldn't well although you say that but people either go with their upbringing or against their upbringing so you could equally have decided that you wanted the apple to have fallen very far from the tree so you've sort of doubled (laughs) down on what your dad gave you Uh, is that the same with have you just got a sister or are there three of you two of you there are three of us Mm -hmm. yes and have you all how, how do you all compare in terms of your love of language and books and words well I suppose um no apple is far flung but um i suppose i'm the closest apple to the trunk mm-hmm. <laughs> if you like mm-hmm. in terms of words and etymology and and my fascination um with all of those things i think that you know uh, um i always had tremendous kind of tunnel vision you know i always sort of wanted to be clutching a tony at 20 uh, you know the Broadway or not yes man, not but, a handsome I mean, man equally or both you know, would be nice clutching a Tony with a Tony nice. doubling <laughs> a, a double Tony, Tony. Tony. Yes. yes um and my brother and sister were much more talented in in many areas you know I mean he my brother's very sporty but uh, and he also uh he was he was good at history and he I mean their interests were much more divergent, both of them. And mine were absolutely English and the arts. And, and that was it, you know. So you always had the jazz hands going from time to time. I did. <laughs> yes, I did. You did. The irrepressible jazz hands of Tom Lee I did it my taste, too. I mean, it was like, you know, I, I think I'd watched Brief Encounter 12 times by the time I was 12. Oh, really? Very, very unusual. I don't know what put me onto these things I, it was well I was sort of devouring memoirs at that stage yeah, what well. were you reading because so for people listening it, it's so much harder to have kids reading now than it was so when I had my kids in the mid 90s and so yeah. it was pre-screen so I brought my children up without screens um just yeah. thank goodness and so it was easy for me not to have that to I mean we obviously did have television screens I'm not a stegosaurus but we didn't have portable <laughs> screens so it did mean that there was less that the kids would want to watch on demand so they did read more so we always uh, but it is a little bit harder now from what I gather with friends who've got younger kids because there are so many distractions so what do you think about I think it's more important than ever isn't it at the moment that we're looking at education as a way to sort of unify the world's gone a bit tits up hasn't it and it'd be quite nice to find ways to build things that are positive again and education is such a part of that isn't it so what do you think about when you look at your childhood with books all around you what books did you love and what do you think helps children love words and books from a tiny age well I think it's some form of identification I mean one of my favorite books was The Wind in the Willows because Mm, we grew up exactly where it was said Mm -hmm. you know and and so it was extraordinary because we would see The Wind in the Willows I mean every day Mm -hmm. and we would see the what's did in the Duck's Ditty you know and we actually had a cafe in our village called the Duck's Ditty that had um be careful how you say that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which had excerpts all over the walls and, and uh, the most beautiful um, conjurings of the, of the paintings from the books. And it was just beautiful. And and uh, uh, what else did I love? I loved 
Roldal because it flirted with the macabre, which mm, I always quite loved dark. Yes. yes, yes, and I particularly loved his rewriting of the nursery rhymes. You know, I love I loved that because that got very macabre. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, and, uh, Grimm's fairy tales were terrifying. I remember my grandma had um, had a whole load of Grimm's fairy tales with all the original pictures, and they were absolutely nightmare-inducing books. But I do remember them. Yes, yes, and then the, actually quite early, I was reading slightly more grown-up things. I mean, I loved Picture of Dorian Gray when mm -hmm. I was very young. I mean, like sort of at eleven, and again, that had a big. That's quite with... sophisticated for an eleven-year-old. Yes, but it's terribly short. <laughs> That's true. A short burst of sophistication. Yes, yes, which is sort of all I am really. You know, I, can't, <laughs> I can't sustain anything. That's what'll be on your tombstone at Highgate Cemetery. <laughs> yes, although I think Dorothy Parker's is the unbeatable one. Do you know? No, I don't. Yes. Um, this one's on me. Oh, <laughs> Very good. That's just untopable, <laughs> isn't it? I came across um, Malcolm McLaren's death mask at Highgate Cemetery. I live near Highgate Cemetery, and on his it says, better a spectacular failure than a benign success. <laughs> and that's, oh, a, that's a good that. one too, isn't it? I think that's, that's a good aspiration really, for us all. Very good, yes. But yes. you've gone from being, so I'm sure you were never um, going to be a spectacular failure, but life's taken quite a turn for you. So it all kind of, you were, you were a jobbing thespian as much as thespians are ever jobbing, right? But you were an yes. in-work, on-the-road thespy until yes. you went on to The Voice. Yes, sort of touring and touring and touring. Um, quite a lot as the cat in the hat playing the titular character. Another. I can see that. Yes. <laughs> um, which I simply adored. And then I was in, uh, I'm, shortly after that, I was in a murder mystery as part of a repertory season called Sweet Revenge. And I was a very, very unlikely suspect. And that's when I decided to I sort of felt that I was bumbling along a bit and, you know, I, I was sort of, I was getting jobs, but they weren't anything to write home about and, and I wasn't anything to write home about in them either. And I sort of thought, oh, there's, I've got to give it one last real shot. And so I decided to do something very bold and rather outré and I auditioned for The Voice in secret while I was still doing this play. And, um, and I kept zipping up to London from Windsor to uh, to meet the vocal coaches and to go through things because there's a long process on the, the auditions voice. for that are, are quite because I've I've worked in reality television most of my career until I became a comic and yeah. there there are different shows aren't there in terms of the audition is either part of the narrative or it's a hidden part of the narrative exactly and it's very hidden in the voice isn't it but it's extensive very yes and they they they're very careful and uh and they take a great deal of care with you they ascribe a vocal coach that they think um is sort of bespoke to your voice and your sound and um and they wrestle a long time with getting the right key and the right material and there's so much to choose from and, and the band's arrangement is very lovingly done even when you're at that very first stage so the summer is dedicated to all of that and then you finally, finally, finally get on screen. And, you know, it's only, as opposed to something like The X Factor, it's only about 80 or, or 90 people that appear on screen. And the show itself was very, very kind to me because I flopped terribly in front of the judges. And they said to me afterwards, because you flopped, I mean, they didn't say that 
<laughs> it was sweet, but they said because you flopped, you know, you'll have a maximum really of two minutes probably. You might get a bit of your song and a bit of your exchange with the judges. And the show were terribly munificent and they gave me eight, eight solid minutes, my whole interview, backstory, song, exchange, everything. And lo and behold, there was the person that was putting together the original Slebs Go Dating, mm -hmm. watching and said, oh, we just, we want someone who's a bit jolly hockey sticks and peculiar. And I just sort of fit the bill. And it's an interesting thing, though, Tom, because one of the things I found growing up in a um, in a kind of otherworldly way like you did in a sort of Truman Show-esque way was yes. that you aren't the same as everybody else. So you are an outlier. You don't quite belong. Being a teacher's kid anyway is an odd thing, but being one in a private campus is yet odder. Yes. And you can kind of go one of two ways, can't you? You can de-self and just decide I'll do all I can to camouflage or you can do what you have done in your career, which is be a kind of, I guess, almost a conscious mismatch. This is who I am. It may not be at all like you. Yes. And I'm bringing that to the into play. And that, to me, is kind of awe-inspiring way to cope in a world where I don't feel I belong. Do you feel, is it embracing not belonging? Or is it just, I find it easy to be me? How do you, how are you so yourself in the face well, of people you are? what delineated, Callie, is that exactly the conversation I had with myself when mm -hmm. I was about 16. And I suppose I sort of said to myself, um, could I make life easier for myself? You know, could I curb this or modify or, or, or whatever? And I, and I, couldn't and then I and think what do you mean you know, by this could I curb this what was this that you were well this about? sort of funny old persona and my voice which was always very androgynous and sat in a, a much more comfortably in a higher register like an erudite auntie like an erudite auntie yes <laughs> yes and when I'm on the radio I mean we met on the radio we did. And when I'm whenever I'm on the Radio people. Uh, I've I've had Fenella Fielding, Angela Lansbury, June Whitfield. I mean, all women in their nineties. Most of them dead. Um, and the, uh, but it is it sort of befits my soul in a way and my taste and and everything. And I think then in the same moment I sort of thought, well, if if I don't want to modify, then I can begin to celebrate what I have arrived at and that epiphany was giant because I think I've celebrated more and more with each passing year that it was a hard thing and it happened piecemeal but I think now I am celebratory of my persona especially I think from 30 to now 35 now um uh, I am very celebratory of this funny old tapestry that I have created sort of inadvertently well and the world is celebrating with you which I think helps and shows you that you backed the right does horse yes but it does, does it, help. if yeah. you think about difference though so I, I was saying before we started um recording about my son being neurodiverse so different yes and watching people navigate the world who are different from whatever we all decree as normal is it can be a painful thing to watch and child I'm guessing you had your moments as a teenager and a child where yes. you were thinking just for survival I might quite like to fit in more did, did was was that a thing oh gosh yes and I, I and you know I I remember 
having my first erection watching Hunter in the Gladiators when I was about five. I hope um, you've chatted to Ulrika about that. In well, section. I've even chatted to Hunter about that. Good. I would hope for nothing less. <laughs> he does lovely gong baths now in Clapham. <laughs> well, and why wouldn't he? And why wouldn't he indeed? He's enchanting. Um, but he, but um, yes, and I, and I remember sort of having this amazing feeling but no context at all. And I think I was wrestling with those feelings until I was about 11, at which point I thought, well, it, it, it's so mal apropos with, this, with the surroundings that I'm in. And I, um, I can't see how it would ever go down well in any uh, pocket of my life. So um, I, but equally, I don't want to be dishonest. So, I sort of thought, well, maybe I'll just say I intend to marry the theatre and uh, and that will be so consuming that uh, I, I can't possibly countenance a romantic life outside of that, mm -hmm. you know, because I shall be so devoted to audiences. And I said that for a little while. So I never made any claim to, to being um, straight, but then I, I sort of had to edge away from that to sort of being a little bit bolder and of course the funny thing was that everybody knew and I suppose that the that's the other thing about my kind of oh for want of a better word flamboyance and androgyny um was that that helped in a funny old way mm -hmm. because it, it uh, preceded everything that I then had to say about my orientation um, and it made it somewhat easier because I sort of thought, well, somewhere they know, you know. The most unsurprising tap dancing out of the closet that had ever happened, <laughs> that had ever befallen humanity. Why, yes, exactly, exactly. motherfuckers. I know a couple of people that have, have gone on to The Voice and, and had their bit of kind of screen time. And... Oh. You know, you sort of, in fact, one of them being my daughter's piano teacher when she was quite oh, young, and we were so excited. We were so keen for something to happen to him, although she would have lost her piano teacher then, which, and I'm glad, selfishly, she managed to get as far as grade eight because he wasn't very good on television. But, actually, you know, he was very good, Jamie, if you're listening, you were superb. But when mm -hmm. you, so when you were spotted by the person working on Celebs Go Dating, so first of all, um, for my mum and dad, who are 78 and 81, and um, an yes. English and a French teacher retired, uh, explain what celebs go dating is. It's explain it as a format for them. Well, it's very aptly titled because it, it, that is really what happens. But we, um, we being uh, Anna Williamson, Paul Carrick Brunson, and I, um, are kind of the conduit for, or the or the colander, if you like, for the kind of lovely human vegetables. Um, that the celebs get to meet and we uh, we try to help them penetrate their showbiz bubble and uh where most of their romantic life has happened hitherto in nearly every case and help them meet members of the public and uh we do it sort of quite benevolently and uh, and sympathetically and uh I don't claim to be an expert, but Anna and Paul really are. Their backgrounds are in are in formal matchmaking and in counselling, and so they do a, a 
an amazing kind of semi-psychoanalytical job upstairs. And I am a kind of ear, shoulder, bosom slash welcoming committee downstairs. Full of um, innuendo in the reception at all times. Yes, yes, a lot of innuendo, which I find um, really does put people at their ease. Well, that's what I was good at. That's the interesting thing, watching it. So I, I've, again, worked on a lot of reality shows and obviously the joy of a lot of them or not, depending whether you're a fan, is that you see all of human life represented, right? So yes, there's a real yes. sort of, yes, there's something quite... It is a microcosm, isn't it? It is. Yes, that's that's. I'd never thought of that before, but that's quite right. Yeah. And you particularly see, I think, privilege and class, and nothing really guarantees who's going to win out on a reality show. And you get surprising heroes yes. who emerge, don't you? And you see yeah. that anyone who likes people watching I don't know if you were watching have you watched couples therapy that's just been on the BBC it's a showtime show it's no I've not oh yeah it's totally brilliant and it's um so it's not a sort of gimmicky reality show it's literally watching couples in the upper west side in New York having um couples therapy and they're intercut their stories it's absolutely compelling um but that's that's not at all constructed and obviously the format you're you're in is is more constructed but either way watching people who are diversely cast and from diverse backgrounds yes is fascinating and watching you interact with them in a kind of way that is in the same way that you describe yourself as androgynous there's a sort of classless placeless sort of quality to it so whoever comes in you just think this is the most unlikely setup for you I mean if if you if five years ago you or however long it was that you started the show a bit longer than five years had seen you sitting in a reception desk talking to someone from the only way is Essex on a sofa what would you have said to yourself well you've made me really think of something that I'd not thought of before but I think perhaps the reason that it, it works is what you were saying before about how you and I don't really belong anywhere you know, because um, because you are sort of oddly classless if you are um, the son or daughter of a, a master at a private school, mm-hmm. because you rub up against, as you say, some some very posh people indeed, mm. and yet you're not one of them at all. And you do have access to some lovely things because all the students go and you can swim in the swimming pool or, or play on the tennis courts if you like it's like living um, in hogwarts on your own in the holidays, it's like living it? in hogwarts on your own but then yeah. you're also painfully aware that none of it's yours and you have to be quite careful and you are on your own which is also a weird thing i used to you i don't know about you own. but i used to watch things on television where they had neighbors and i used to think god i'd love to have a neighbor imagine being in a street where there are children that you go and play with or neighbors <laughs> because there yeah. were no neighbors it was just us and maybe there might be a couple of other staff children the similar age but you yeah. might not really like yeah. them they were just your age and so therefore you had to kind of no. hang out with them they weren't in people my case kids. there was there was absolutely no one my age um but quite a lot of children that were about six to eight years younger so I was constantly babysitting um was yours a mixed school or, a, or an all boys school it became mixed ironically the year I joined <laughs> oh did it there you go so you were embracing of gender from the start your yes, influence yes, was very inclusive yes. mine was a boys school which just started taking girls when I joined so there were virtually no girls so I felt really that I didn't belong both in terms of gender and yes. economics and you know lineage so it was definitely but when you look at 
But the interesting thing, though, is, well, I suppose we've both gone into kind of performance and nobody probably does what we do if they've had an easy paper round. Right. There are easier ways to live life than to put (laughs) oneself out there for love or hate or affirmation or not, depending the way the wind blows. But it is really interesting watching you again, having worked on a lot of these types of shows. I imagine that it was all about whatever that kind of talent scout exec for the show saw in you was personality was this is somebody we're going to plop into the mill pond as a kind of um hand grenade that is going to do something to the show and there'll be a certain alchemy that arises because this person's in the show but they probably didn't have a clear idea of your role must have been very oh. Tom Reed Wilson shaped oh it was it, it was a total experiment mm. and, and actually it's the reason I wanted to do it because um uh, you know I didn't have any big hankerings for Teddy prior to that but they said to me when we had our initial meeting they said you know we really don't know what we want you to do at all um beyond welcoming people in and so they said it may very well be that we have a clever editor who trims you out very neatly so no one ever knows that you were there and I thought none taken what a liberating (laughs) notion you know I thought how brilliant because I can't I simply cannot fail if I fail I'm invisible but that's also a pressure right because you must a bit of you must have really wanted it I mean that is a big opportunity to suddenly get a proper role in a what you then didn't know but what's become a recurring format on channel four well I think I was truly such an ignoramus Callie I mean I really was and I didn't I didn't know who anybody was had you ever watched anything like that I can't imagine you sitting watching reality tv no 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 never and and my knowledge to this day is scant and it's another thing that I think helps because Because you don't really know who a lot of them are anyway because you're not I mean if somebody comes in and they are you know a, a tremendous rogue I have a complete tabula rasa, you know, I, I, I don't know that. So what I learn from them, I learn through them, you know, which I think is, is liberating for them and for me. And does it teach you to do, it's so easy, isn't it, to take people at face value and to make assumptions based on accent, based on clothing. Based, and I think there's something about your world being extremely broad and having contact with people you just simply wouldn't meet in your own social circles which is kind of what performance is right we're throwing ourselves out there into the unknown and so we have to be curious don't we to survive yes yes. and I was just going to say exactly the same thing I mean that's what the theatre is all about Mm -hmm. you know you're assembled in a company that tends to be normally is wildly divergent um, in every way socioeconomically and in every possible way and you're there and you bond furiously and your bonding elevates the show if it all works well. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, that Celebs Go Dating is rather like being in a theatrical company because, mm-hmm. you know, you're thrust together very quickly. You overshare <laughs> liberally. And as a result, you bond furiously and very fast and and it's lovely it's it's lovely and And I have to say it's a very I think that this isn't necessarily true of reality Teddy in the main um but it's such a benevolent set I mean from our runners I mean this series we had two divine runners called Matteo and Katie who were the kindest people on the planet 
right up to the top. It's 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 warm hearted. I don't I honestly don't think I could be part of it if it if it wasn't. And also very fortunately from my point of view, it, it, I'm not interfered with or steered or anything. I'm just allowed to chew the fat with whomever comes in and, and then if they don't like it, they'll cut around it, which is it's very liberating. Well, it's liberating or terrifying, depending who you are, because some people would want a brief. Some people would be thinking, gosh, I, I don't really know. I, I've de-selfed now that I've got the pressure of this going on around me. I don't know who to be. And I think the reason people really, really warm to you is because it doesn't matter that, that everybody belongs because no one belongs. And you do make everybody feel that they have a seat at the table. So there's nothing patronising. Everybody sort of walks out the reception a little bit taller. And I should, um, for full disclosure, say I'd never watched the show until I knew I was going to be interviewing you because having worked in this medium, I never really watched it for pleasure. Um, and then I was, and a couple of friends who I said, oh, do you watch it? A couple of them did and said, oh, you know, absolutely loved you. And, and of course I started watching it for research and then, you know, six episodes in, slightly glued. <laughs> Um, it is quite Moorish, I have to say. So, <laughs> mum and dad, do do tune in. Speaking of your mum and dad, it just because I suppose they're similar to my dad in a way, and my dad is uh, couldn't be less interested. So, is um, your dad in his seventies now? Yeah, my dad's yeah. in his seventies, and I remember we went to Zidell's together. And That's a lovely place to go. A lovely place mm. to go, and we went for supper about four years ago, I suppose. And it was at the beginning of the time when I would sort of be asked for selfies and things, which daddy found very annoying. And um, I, just, I love it, but um, we went down together and it was a very elderly crowd. And he went, oh, thank goodness it's not your demographic. And we <laughs> sat down, we were sort of ensconced on our bonquette. And then a couple in their seventies came over and they said, oh, Tom, we love you. And I said, oh, thank you very much. And uh, and Daddy said, well, how do you know Tom? And they said, oh, we love Celebs Go Dating. Oh, really? Yes. And he said, what on earth are you two doing watching Celebs Go Dating? That's, that's and that's so what the strange. advertisers will be saying as well. This is not what they're paying top dollar for. <laughs> <laughs> and is there, well, I, I can imagine a bit what your dad might think of fame. But what about you yeah. then? Because something, I, th I think people who, coming from behind the camera to on camera, for yeah. me, has meant that there is absolutely no allure to the idea of getting recognised. I like doing the telly I like doing, and I like the fact it opens other doors for me that I do some telly. But yes. being on telly in its own right is not an end in and of itself. And certainly being recognised, I would find a big burden. And having worked with a lot of A-listers, um, I, I primarily work with American sort of celebrities yeah. and some big names and watching what their lives are like. So you're already at a point where, you know, you, you can't walk down the street without being recognised. And it's probably only going to go up and up and up, even from where you are now. So what is your view then about, about that recognisable fame factor in your life? Well, I suppose it's the tenor of the recognition that is a, a very big thing. And I'm luckily not remotely a controversial character. Um, so do you I not get trolled? Have you, do you not tend to get hate? Is it, does it tend to be love? I've I've been very very fortunate. I mean, occasionally you get the odd homophobic thing, which I think is inevitable, really, sadly. But not very many. And mm -hmm. I I know a lot of people that um, have had it very badly. And I think, gosh, I've been terribly lucky. 
But, I mean, in all our lives, there are those moments where we hope very much not to meet somebody. When you've just come back from a run and your testicles hanging out of your running shorts well, exactly, and you're a bit pink and they of face. are, you yes, know. Yes, we were talking um, about And I remember the time that I thought that most was actually my favourite fan encounter ever because um, I, my arty, my beloved nephew, who um, I sort of, not quite co-raised, but I would have him about two days a week from birth until he was four when he left London and moved to Manchester. And his final, final day in London, we stuffed the day and we went to see the Lion King and we went to the Science Museum and we had crepes and we just, it was divine. And it was just the two of us. And there was so much diversion that day that I avoided leaking. And then I said goodbye to him at Waterloo and, and gave him back to his lovely mummy. And I just burst into tears and, and so did he. And uh, I was inconsolable. Oh, I was inconsolable. And, and it was commuter o'clock and I thought, oh, heck, I'm not going to get away with not seeing anybody. And it was very <laughs> unprepossessing crying, you know. It was Full snotty crying, yeah. Blotches and everything. And anyway, I was on the steps leaving Waterloo Station, praying not to bump into anybody. And at that moment... This lady saw me in my wretched state and put her hand on my deltoid and she said, Tom, whatever it is, it will be all right. And I just thought, oh, that's the loveliest thing. You know, I'd sooner have had that in that moment than mm -hmm. meet a friend because your mm -hmm. friends naturally would probe. Mm -hmm. And here was this kind of unconditional so I don't want to know I just want to squeeze your dental mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know because that will help you and I thought gosh that's a wonderful wonderful thing that almost is beyond compare I suppose I suppose a perfect stranger could do that well it's, um, this, it's the conversations you, but, I was talking in another one of these about the conversations you have on planes or trains or buses or whatever I'm sure you're probably not on buses as much these days but those the, the comfort of strangers. Oh, I love those the 22 and the 11 all the palindromic ones I, they I'm, are nice and we're doing this on that we're recording this on the second of the second 22 so you must oh, be absolutely oh, losing your shit about this is terribly lucky for me yeah <laughs> so the idea of um so the idea of fame in its own right isn't something that you have a strong feeling about so you're not moving towards it you're not moving away from it it's just a fact of life that you're kind of happy with Yes, I think fact of life and, and, and I suppose in practical terms, it does open some curious doors because I mean, like, well, well, you know, I, I began, I suppose, about six months ago to flirt with the idea of, of getting back in touch with acting because I thought, well, if I don't do it now, because it's eight years since I played a role. I thought I just won't be brave enough. I, and I commit a sonnet to memory every every couple of weeks to try and keep the grey cells dancing, you know, and, and try and keep that habit of learning things. Um, but I thought beyond that, I don't think I'd know how to do it. And so I, I bit the bullet and I joined a, an acting agency. And um, two weeks into the new year, I got a script um, uh, and it was purely because the writer of this script sort of thought I was rather like what she knew of me from, from the telly. And it is a, a role that's quite like me, but a bit more of a lush and a little bit snippy. And it's a film with Snoop Dogg. Well, that is a sentence I wasn't expecting to hear this afternoon. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, and anyway, I, I uh, uh, eventually I, I got the role. I had to submit some self tapes and then meet them, and it, it that was all very lovely. And um, and I thought, gosh, you know, that this is purely because of fame. You and know, are you doing this, that? Has that happened yet, or is that? I'm presumably that's going that's to happen. That's filming in June. I've got and where? Filming in June. Where in, are you in London? Alas, I don't get to meet Snoop. Because oh, I was hoping you'd be over in some sort of LA parking lot doing kind of unexpected <laughs> well, he things. He will be. Snoop. Yes, I've he, no doubt. He will be for the duration. Um, but it's a kind of a transatlantic story, but like. Um, 84 Charing Cross Road. I don't know if you've ever seen I that. do. I know that. Oh, yes, I'll... of course. So, so I can't imagine how you and Snoop and that can quite... I, that's an interesting Venn diagram that I'm trying to picture <laughs> in terms of the cinematic output of that. It's going to be... So this is... Well, I long to meet him. I long to meet him. I think I will eventually at the premiere. But yes, funny you enough, will. You'll be arm in arm with him. Uh, oh. You in your best frock, him in his kind of harem pants. It'll be amazing. Oh, yes, hoping, Kathy. And is um so you're doing that because that's what I was going to ask you about the sort of what what next for you really so you were a thespian you went to the Royal Academy of Music you've got the yes. music you've got the theatre are you somebody when you act um, because obviously on celebs go dating we get the sense that you're a slightly amplified version of you or perhaps not even amplified <laughs> you're <Unless laughs> not amplified so yeah. there you are the the you we would get so if we were sitting yeah. chatting away watching something on the telly it would be the same you would it you'd be the same it would be it would be the same exactly it would be the same. And my poor friends and family, it's it's the eternal question that they get asked. You know, it's it, he can't surely be like that. You know, and well, it's working for your nephew, your, your biggest fan. I am. What, what your ne- I said it's working for your nephew, your biggest fan. He oh, yes. Well, I, I, as they say in Variety, I rate tall with him. Yes. You know, occasionally he stumbles upon me if he's up a little bit late. Or, well, hey, Dougie was the thing that did it actually because ah, of course, yes. all my kids, I, I, I voice a halitotic lion in Hey Dougie, yes, and I, I've got quite a lot of sproglets um, about the place, not of my own, but um, who I'm very involved with, and um, and suddenly my star rating shot up because it was actually something they watched it's when you do things that are in there I I know all the year everything I did career-wise was always a step the wrong moment for the kids to notice it was cool so you know I was at Nickelodeon when they were too little to be watching Nickelodeon and then I was at MTV (laughs) when they were too little to know MTV was cool and then and then they look back and go my god mum you know why didn't you take us to that premiere and I said because you just weren't remotely interested you know opportunities because you didn't care which is a kind of nice thing as well but if you so you've got the music you've got the kind of thespian traits you've got the presenting so what is it you you want to do then where where is this going to go well it's funny because I I love to say yes to things and I don't like to forecast and it makes me very nervous somehow I sort of like to really live a day at a time I know Mm -hmm. it's a terrible hackneyed phrase but but I do like that because I am apt to be fretful as a porcupine if I if I forecast. Um, but well, I because you think I there's really... something you should be achieving, you'll be competing against other people, or what is it about the thinking yeah. ahead? Uh, I think it's that I don't know. I I think if you forecast a long way, there's as much that's bad that creeps in as as good, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you live in the moment then it doesn't feel that way you kind of I think you're 
your occhiali rosa are less inclined to slip, you know. Um, but uh, I suppose if if I have dreams about things, they always tend to be concerning roles, um, you know, playing parts. And so the Snoop Dogg story is an important one in terms of yes. the sort of thing you might want to do more of. Very much so, very much so. And I'm very lucky as well, because I mean, there are some fun things from an acting point of view that I get to do in this, in in terms of kind of being a bit squiffy and occasionally being a bit snippy. But um, uh, I don't mind too much about being typecast. You know, uh, uh, for me, when, when I was properly acting, um, I always felt that there were two kinds of actors, really. There, there were the kings and queens of metamorphosis. And there the were Meryl the... Meryl Streep's and the... The yeah, Meryl Streep's, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and then there were those who you always sort of half saw, you know, even if they were doing an accent or... or the Hugh Grants. The Hugh Grants. And, and both cams, I think, are equally delicious and equally have their merit. So... Um, I don't mind sort of falling a bit into the other camp because to me the the thrill is all about telling stories really rather than totally metamorphosing. Maybe that's a bit of a, a get out of jail free card. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's the same as saying I can't act. I'm going to assume it's not the same as saying that. no, no, no. It's the conscious no. discipline in acting that you've chosen. Yes, I think you see it's more about masticating on wonderful words and it's that kind of it's that sort of intellectual thing that really kind of gets the frontal lobe swollen that's that's the thing I, I think that's probably why I commit all these sonnets to memory because I just love I just love some divine person on some astral plane somewhere giving me polysyllables I'd never have thought of to chew on you know I just love it it's very physical it is. And the words and the words that you do. So you have your um, your word of the day vignettes on Instagram. So you yes. do those and you have your um, your words with podcast and it's you can't talk to you without being a, a sort of cognizant of the fact that etymology is an important thing for you. So your your love of words, um, it, that's the thing that I guess underpins everything that you do. That's the connection. Everything you do is so reliant on how you communicate yes, and that I specific that, relationship with words. Ooh, I think it's the golden gossamer thread that that holds everything together, even the singing, because I, I, I suppose I'm quite lyric-led when it comes to singing too. Well, and the music and language are so connected, aren't they? Music, maths yes. and language. Have you read An Equal Music by Vikram Seth? Yes, I yes. have. That was another of my dad's recommendations. Incredible book. And I think those connections that you have between those different things and those different parts of your brain. Did you learn, you learned French in lockdown? Did I dream that? Or is that a real no, thing that happened? My God, you've really done your homework, Callie. So how, um, and so now you because speaking and I speak Dutch, um, Tom, which is a really useful yeah. life skill, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> they desperately need us all to learn Dutch to be able to communicate over there. But it does open up a different. My, my daughter, my kids are bilingual, and it, watching the different. There's, a, I think, there's research to say that a certain part of the brain gets opened up if children are brought up with a couple of languages that then yeah. make them much more receptive also to other languages. So I know certainly in the case of my daughter, she just picks up languages like a sponge wherever she goes. Yes. Um, yeah. 
Um, yeah. So I do, and and that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Taking on a set because you already obviously had, I'm sure, elements of what you know. I can't remember what they're called in English and Dutch. They're called lane border, the loan words from another language. So yeah. there's lots of French in the English language, and I'm sure you were familiar with many yeah. French words. But has it been quite a different experience for a love of language like you to learn a, another one? Yes, and I, you know, and also I did this rather naughty thing of speaking, having a smattering of French in a slightly polygolitely esque way, you know. And yes, yeah, so you're um, not afraid to use a bit of French in the celebsco dating reception. No, well, and, and this time round we had Miles Nazaire, who only flirts in French. So I yes. thought, well, I'd better pull my socks up and speak French to him. Because I mean, any of us would learn a language to be able to flirt with him. I think that's a oh, very good. They gosh. should bring that onto the curriculum. I think uh, turns me to absolute aspect. Yes, I mean, even Rob like... Beckett's not impervious to his charms, is he? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, and he's my neighbour. So oh, is he? Yes. Well, there yes. you are. Well, you see, we knew each other before Celebs Go Dating because he stumbled upon me doing a crossword in Battersea Park. Did he? What a nice stumble. Down, which was very nice. That's the nicest thing that could happen to a man on a park bench, I think, isn't mm-hmm. it? <laughs> I'll say it. So the French, so have you found, because the the thought of all of this, I keep hoping as somebody who's kind of businesses, words and language, um, albeit not in as um, clear and impressive a way as yours, but I keep hoping we'll duck the will duck the kind of bullet of general collapse of grey matter because there's a lot to be said, isn't there, for doing those daily things and exercising your brain and using words. So um, do you think we're going to manage to duck that and never grow old because of our love of words? I think think if I had two recommendations, it would be um, a sonnet a day and a a crossword a day as well. What do you think of Wordle? What do you think of the Wordle trend? Well, I can't master it yet. I I mean... um, Umpteen friends of mine have pinged it to me in, in kind of WhatsApp links. And I don't I don't understand what you do. I don't I they say to me, or oh, you have to you have to create the right six words to find out what the missing word is. But it's just a big empty box, isn't it? So I don't understand. Am I being very dense? Well, the women at my Pilates class, who I might add are often old, even older than me, were trying to explain it to me yesterday. And I, I've i not done it. And I also don't really understand it. But I decided that it was probably quite a good thing, isn't it? If everybody's trying to do a word. I liked the, apparently the collective experience of it, where you're, we sound like a couple of old ladies, don't we? Again, there's this new thing called Instagram. And it sounds what the young people are doing. But the, but the work, yeah, it sounded to me like quite a nice thing. But I have to agree, I don't really understand what it is. And I haven't tried it. So. Well, I read it. About it in the paper today, and the gentleman that created it created it for his girlfriend, and his name is Mr. Wardle, so uh-huh. that's why it's called Wordle. And he he just sold it to the New York Times, didn't he? I think. Yes, he did. So that was a kind of predestined thing. Then, with a name like that, he's really spent his whole life going, "How can I live into my name?" And yes, come up with nominative can... determinism. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And is there? What do you think, by the way, of the name of this podcast, Namaste, motherfuckers? What would you say about that? What does your etymology <laughs> I, tell you about this? I think it's divine. I love. I love when two um, quite singular things are slammed together and make a delicious fusion. I was told. You know, I love it, it with food too. Oh yes, definitely, and and you and it's your career, isn't it? Watching unlikely influences and cultural things being slammed together to great yeah. entertaining effect. So it's very much a You're metaphor so for your life. at connecting these dots, which I have never connected. They they exist in my own life, and I've. <laughs> 
never thought to connect them. You can see it as sort of free therapy, if you like. You can come away from this feeling. Well, thank you, Kelly. Very connected <laughs> to yourself. Um, I'm going to ask you the three questions I ask everyone, Tom. But before I do, I've just oh, got yeah. an extra bonus question for you because this episode Ooh. is going out on Valentine's Day for obvious reasons. Um, yes. So what would your message be? So lots of people will be listening to this the day it drops on the 14th of February, 2022. What is your message for Valentine's Day? Namaste, motherfucking listeners. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, um, he is surprisingly close to us, uh, St. Valentine, because I think that somebody went off to, a friar from Ireland went off to visit one of the popes and brought back his remains and buried them in Dublin or something. So I think we should feel the saint's proximity. Particularly if we're listening from Dublin. Yes, particularly for Irish listeners, exactly. And allow him to put wings on our heels, whether we're single or in an item. And um, and I think be suffused with romance. It's quite a delicious thing. And if you're on your own, date yourself. That's what I do. Well, I'm meeting my mum and dad at the Hawk Conservancy on Valentine's Day, which is a a Hawk Conservancy down in the West Country. So there you (laughs) go. That's my romantic day. Um, In case anyone thinks that their love life's not going well, there you are. Beat that. Um, So... (laughs) Oh, they're so majestic, though. Oh, it's beautiful. I'd really recommend it as a day out. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick out of your uh, quite incredible life to date, Tom? What would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? I think, actually, it was it was the moment shortly after everything that happened with The Voice and Celebs Go Dating, where, you see, the last thing, just about the last thing I did on stage was playing The Cat in the Hat, and I played it at the Palace in Manchester, which is a huge sort of opera house. And my best friend came... And after the performance, he was terribly quiet. And so, of course, like all performers do, I was anxiously probing. And I said, why are you so quiet? You didn't think much of it, did you? And eventually he said, you were fine. (laughs) Oh, God. You were fine, but you could have been a third bigger and still not have been too big. And I thought, God, I was straining every sinew. I was giving everything. And when I moved into telly, I found that that medium fit my personality I wasn't too big really or too small Mm. you know it just it just fit my natural personality and that was that was a big namaste motherfucking moment because I thought oh bliss you know I don't have to reach further than I could almost reach you know it was a very nice liberating feeling you found your medium thank goodness you weren't born in another period of history where that's the way this medium didn't exist (laughs) imagine if you were in Shakespearean times you'd have had to fill the globe there would have been yes I'd have had to have grown an inch I I would so um and what would you pick as your favorite joke oh well I mean it's easy because it's the only one I can ever remember um There are two muffins in the oven and one muffin turns to the other muffin and says, gosh, it's very hot in here, isn't it? And the other muffin says, oh my God, it's a talking muffin. (laughs) (laughs) It just tickles me because it's so surreal. And this is one bit of the podcast you can play to the small people in your life without causing any offence if you edit around the bit before and afterwards. And if there was one bit of life advice, Tom, you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? Oh, I think it would have to be engaged with the arts. 
I think especially the performing arts, I think we're all better for being exposed to them. I mean, I think when you go to the theatre, it's like the most beautiful distillation of humanity at its best because the performers are sending something out beyond the footlights and then the audience is this dimly lit, giant, benevolent, nebulous body are sending out their focus and attention and the performance itself is sort of made somewhere above the footlights, you know, between these two forces. And I think humanity at its best, a, a sort of multiple forces working to a common goal benevolently. And that's what I, that's what I always feel when I'm in the theatre. You know, it's just bliss. And it's very accepting, isn't it, the theatre? Because that is, again, I already asked you one bonus question. My very, very last cheeky bonus question is about <laughs> fitting in and belonging. So to, to yes. people like you, like me, who grew up with difference, didn't feel quite the same. And perhaps it does take a bit of time to grow into that and to know whether to double down on it or yeah. to run away from it and camouflage. And you've yeah. done the opposite. You've really found your voice literally through doing the voice. But what would you say then to people who are feeling I really don't fit in, maybe I'm about to be found out, I'm not the same, so it means I'm not good enough, I'm different. What, what, what would you say to them? I'd say celebrate your idiosyncrasies. Mm -hmm. Celebrate your idiosyncrasies. Don't even think about augmenting them, just celebrate them, because if you celebrate them, other people will. And uh, also, people tend to fall in love with them. I mean, if you think about people that, I mean, certainly for me, the people that I'm most attracted to, I'm attracted to those idiosyncrasies that no doubt at some stage they would have considered masking. And to me, they're always, always the most appealing parts. That was wordsmith extraordinaire, Mr. Tom Reed Wilson. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, it has to be Wordle. Yes, Wordle. And given this is going out a whole 10 days after Tom and I had our actual conversation when we recorded it, and Wordle, I dare say, by then, well, it is bigger than ever. I can't and I won't delay another day. I hope I understand it. I shall keep you posted. And that is it for this week. Remember to rate, review and recommend the show. It helps lovely people like you keep on finding us and let's face it this episode has been mainly about love we will be back in your feed next monday as always when i will be talking to comedian actor and presenter tanya moore i think it still just goes back to fear if i'm honest i'm still very much can i be entertaining for an hour namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.